Bakai, it's really good to have you. It's good to see you because I've missed seeing you on the Parliament channel. Very often when I watch the House of Lords on television, I can see you seated there. You're obviously a very diligent member of the House of Lords, but it's good to have you with us today. Thank yeah. you. Um, I'd just like to explore a little bit about your, your past, um, your early years, where you grew up, the home life that you had. Perhaps you could tell us a little, please. Well, um, my father and mother were both very devoted to the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. My father was an elder and my mother an attentive hearer and donor as well. Hmm. Uh, they, my father had been on the railway uh, and he had suffered from ill health and had retired. Uh, and my mother was a widow uh, before she married him. Uh, and they got married. And uh, after some considerable time, I arrived on the scene. And I was an only child. And I was brought up, as you can imagine, in the uh, nurture of the gospel. Hmm. Uh, and uh, regularly at church and uh, was very familiar with the church people and uh, people that came from distant parts of Scotland. Uh, and sometimes from further afield from uh, Rhodesia, as it was then, mm -hmm. uh, uh, missionaries. And uh, uh, we had really very close contacts with the church from my earliest years. My mother's brother had a family of seven up in Caithness, and he lost his wife uh, after uh, the, some time after the last child was born. And so my mother and father, uh, because they were reasonably free in that respect, uh, liked to go up to Caithness to give him what help they could. Uh, he ran a small uh, farm uh, in uh, a place called Scots Calder, which is just uh, a bit south of Thurso in the, no in the middle of Caithness. And... Um, uh, I enjoyed that very much. I had seven cousins. I had no brother or sister, hmm. but I got to know my uncle very well, and he was very kind to me, and we enjoyed being uh, on the farm, which was a, quite a difference from being hmm. in uh, a tenement flat in Edinburgh. Uh, I found him extremely uh, nice, uh, pleasant company, uh, and then sadly and suddenly, he passed away. Hmm. And I think it was that perhaps uh, as much as anything else that made me concentrate somewhat more on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Uh, and um, I had always been uh, in the church circles and listened every uh, weekend to the preaching of the everlasting gospel. Uh, but uh, I think, I, uh, you know, I, I felt uh, very much in it, for really, from my earliest days. But about that time, it was becoming, it became more serious in a way to me. And mm. what I knew and what uh, I think is important is that uh, I knew myself to be a sinner. Although I knew what I should do, I wasn't always doing it. <laughs> One of the things about being a sinner 
is that once you've done it, there's nothing much you can do about it. You can't take it back <laughs> when you realize that you've done wrong. You can't take it back. And that's where the gospel is so important because the substance of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And I found that a very important and very, what should I say, alleviating doctrine, mm. that it was possible to seek forgiveness and that the promise in forgiveness was, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins, and return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Hmm. One of the most uh, clear, one of the clearest part, uh, texts in scripture. Most of the scripture is very clear. There are pieces of scripture which are hard to be understood as um, the apostle Peter said mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the, most of the really important scriptures and all scripture is important but the the clearest is very much uh, the gospel mm -hmm. well the, the the verse about our sins being blotted out I even know the bible reference for that but that's only because we used to as children sing a song about it, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 22, 23. So it's a good verse indeed. Did you find during, I don't know, later years, older teenage years, maybe at university, Lord Mackay, I, I don't know, a deeper questioning? Was there ever a period of rebellion against Christian things? No, I don't think I ever, I, I don't think I ever um, rebelled against them. I didn't do what I ought to do many times, if that's what you call rebellion. And uh, I um, absolutely plead guilty to it. <laughs> but, uh, it's a question of, of confessing one's sins now. If we confess and forsake, we shall have mercy. Mm. And that's the gospel. And it's absolutely the heart of the gospel to me. And it is what, in a way, has uh, shaped my life. I wish it were more so. I mm. wish it had shaped it more. But it has had a, a, an important part in my life, all my life, which, as you know, is quite long. <laughs> well, now, I know you studied maths and physics and you lectured at university in maths, etc. But eventually you were to become a, a lawyer and a judge. Now, there you are pleading guilty and admitting you're a sinner. How did that impact you as a judge? Because there, you know, presumably you've got people who are certainly accused of crime, possibly guilty of crime, standing in the dock, and you're the judge. Yes, well, uh, the gospel is forgiveness, but uh, the uh, law of the land requires, and it happens to everybody, it would happen to me too if I had broken the law of the land. Uh, there are sins which are not breaches of the law of the land exactly but still sin a rebellion against the word of the most high uh, that, that's what i would call sin but breaches of the law of the land are different hmm. and they are subject to the justice system that we have and uh, i found myself involved in that uh, as a judge as you say uh, but uh, also as an advocate uh, for uh, quite a number of years 
Now, as a judge, I feel that the most difficult jo job that a judge has is when he has to deal with sentencing his fellow people. Mm -hmm. And I found that extremely difficult. I've seen cases which I tried myself and where the jury have the responsibility of deciding on guilt, not the judge. And when the jury had decided, I had to pronounce sentence. Hmm. And the idea of sentencing one of your fellows and sometimes quite young people is a very heavy responsibility. I remember one of the early cases I had was a young man on the west of Scotland who had been found by the jury guilty of murder. He had taken out a knife and uh, when the, his opponent came on the scene, he used the knife and the opponent was murdered. And the jury took that view of him. Now, I felt rightly or wrongly that that was, you know, for all his life. I felt very, very sorry for him. Hmm. Uh, I couldn't say that, of course, in the court. But hmm. I think he, because as he left the dock to go downstairs, he turned and bowed very warmly to me. And I thought that, uh, you know, there was something in that message hmm. which I felt uh, glad to have. Although, of course, it didn't do any benefit to him mm -hmm. uh, at all. But it was something that he knew that somebody at least understood what had happened to him. Hmm. Were other cases which you look back on, Lord Mackay, and think, dear me, that was a terrible miscarriage of justice? And not in my own experience. No, not my mm -hmm. cases. I, I mean, I, I, didn't, I wasn't a judge with sentencing powers for very long. Because as Lord Advocate, I was responsible for criminal prosecutions in Scotland. Hmm. And therefore, although I became a judge, I couldn't deal with these cases until after they had the indictments had ceased to be going out in my name. Hmm. And that wasn't for very long because uh, I was moved rather quickly to the House of Lords. And hmm. um, <laughs> tell us how you um, you how you first of all met. Um, Margaret Thatcher and how she approached you about the possibility of becoming Lord Chancellor? Well, I, I was first of all appointed Lord Advocate yes. by Margaret Thatcher and that happened because on the Monday after the, her election as the Prime Minister, she phoned to my home and uh, she asked me whether I would be willing to be the Lord Advocate. Huh. Now, I wasn't a politician. Uh, I had uh, my devil master, my pupil master, who later became Lord Grieve, was a conservative candidate in West Lothian. But uh, it was a pretty hopeless uh, case because West Lothian was primarily a Labour constituency. But I was with him and went with him and that. But I had never been involved in politics. And actually, I was at that time the dean of the Faculty of Advocates and... Uh, on the whole, I think um, a degree of political independence is probably quite appropriate in that place. But anyway, I was the dean and she asked me uh, to become Lord Advocate. And uh, you don't have long to decide on these matters. <laughs> uh, I said to her I would uh, take it on. 
How did she know of you? Well, uh, that's a mystery. Oh. Uh, the, Michael Havers, who was my, who was the Attorney General, had come up to Scotland uh, a time time earlier, and uh, I had met him, and he he tells me, uh, he told me that uh, he had recommended uh, me. Oh, uh, whether that's the source of her knowledge, I have no idea, but that's what he said to me, and I think I'm sure that he did that. Whether she had other uh, sources of information, I can't say. And it must be quite something for the very first time to sit round a cabinet table and you see all these people who really are controlling the, the strings of government and there you are. Did, did you feel, I don't know, did you feel overawed? Did you feel, what, what, how did you feel? Well, as a Lord Advocate, you're only, you were, in these days, it's changed a bit now. But in these days, you were only called to the cabinet when there was a matter which uh, required your advice or uh, some explanation from you or something of that sort. So I, I wasn't a member of the cabinet at that stage, but simply uh, a person called from time to time. And I must say, I felt it rather a daunting experience uh, to go. But on the whole, I was well received and uh, I had a, a great friend. Uh, I didn't know him at all before that, but uh, he, a member of the cabinet, Lord Carrington. All right. Late Lord Carrington. He was a marvelous man and uh, a great, uh, he became a close friend of mine in the sense that he used to tell me afterwards what the cabinet had thought of what I had said. <laughs> a, useful, a useful source of information. Absolutely. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, you know, you, you're asked to make major decisions, sometimes concerning your own your own life. What decisions you're going to make? Are you going to accept this or not? And other decisions um, that are going to impact others. It, do you do you do you pray about these things? Do you do you read the scripture? Do you read the Bible to seek to get guidance from that? What? How, how does prayer and Bible reading uh, come into your life, and how does it impact you? Well, I. I had been accustomed to uh, family worship every day, morning and evening at home, and it's our uh, practice still. Hmm. Uh, and there are portions in the scripture that advise you what to do in these circumstances. If any of you lack wisdom, and I'm very lacking in wisdom, ask of God who give us to all up liberally and upraid us not, in the words of the 1611 version, he upraid us not, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it shall be given. And uh, I, when I was faced, as I often was, with quite difficult situations, quite difficult uh, answers, uh, I was of the kind of lawyer that likes to give the answer. I'm not too keen on this. Uh, on the one hand, it could be this, and on the other hand, it could be that. Uh, I think that's true very often, but I think it's a lawyer's responsibility if he's asked to say what he believes is the right answer. He may be wrong, of course. No, no <laughs> lawyer is infallible, uh, and uh, uh, so you have to be conscious that you may be wrong. But on the other hand, you have to, I think, give the advice which you believe is correct at the time you give it. Um, 
you've seen in your lifetime a tremendous rise of secularism and an undermining of Christian values, Christian beliefs, even a, a sort of uh, drip drip attack on the Ten Commandments. One of the effects of that is the loss of the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day, Sunday. Uh, and I know you, you strictly believe that Sunday is God's day. It's a day set aside for him. Why, why do you believe that? And how do you feel um, it, a nation should take note of it today? Well, what I believe is that the uh, uh, fourth commandment was part of Moses' law, uh, moral law. Uh, and uh, it has uh, an effect still, but it was rep- re- as it was originally framed, it was the seventh day of the week, based on the completion of work. You'd done your work for the week. The Most High did the creative work, which is recorded in Genesis, and the Sabbath was the completion of that work. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, I think one has to be uh, careful because it, the, the commandment is a seventh day and therefore uh, you have to think what you're, how you apply it in the circumstances of the New Testament dispensation. Uh, and I reached the conclusion that the resurrection of our Lord signified to the world the completion of his humiliation and therefore it was reasonable to say that what had been commanded in the tenth in the fourth commandment was applicable in respect of that work but uh, one has to remember that the lord jesus repeatedly pointed out uh, when he was being accused of breach of the sabbath that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and that the idea of the Sabbath is to provide rest from work for as many people as possible. There are people who have to work through the every day of the week, and that's just necessary, and emergencies can happen on any day of the week. So I... I was brought up uh, and I have followed the general rule uh, that uh, the Sabbath is a day for rest uh, uh, so far as physical work and mental work is concerned, although it is also a day that we can devote to worship and thinking about why we are here, what we are here for, have we done it well, can we do it better, can we... um, resort to the great high priest uh, of the New Testament dispensation, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a high priest, a wonderful advocate, and he is uh, our advocate. And I I think one has to be mighty careful that one is not depending on one's works, one's own works for salvation, because that will never work. Mm -hmm. And therefore I I think one has to be slightly careful how one describes these obligations, Mm. but it's a matter of benefit to people to have a rest. There's no doubt about it. 
Mm, absolutely. Now, you mentioned the resurrection of Jesus. He, so he died. He died for our sin. He was buried three days later. Christians believe he rose from the dead. Now, you're a lawyer. You're you're used to sifting through evidence. You are a mathematician. So you've got an analytical mind. Do you think if the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was put before a court of law and scrutinized by lawyers, do you think it could still be believed? Well, uh, the first thing I have to say is that I think uh, from what I've read, and I'm uh, not uh, an expert in these matters, but from what I've read, the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, and his life in the world before that uh, as well uh, is one of the most uh, authenticated in contemporary records that you can get. Uh, but the truth is that the gospel is something that you accept and trust in. It's not just a question of a court of law saying this is a fact. It is a question of do you trust yourself to the Lord Jesus for time and for the world to come? That, that's the matter. It's not a court of law can't determine that. That's the act of the person's will enabled by the divine spirit now let me just ask if i may just being a little bit nosy <laughs> so you 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 served under margaret thatcher and then of course sir john major as well um i don't know do you have any favorite memories of margaret thatcher any anecdotes of i don't know conversations incidents well uh, i think the um the one that sticks best in my memory, and I had a lot of, she, she was extremely good to people who were in her, uh, uh, what should I say, in her circle, when they were in difficulties and so on, she was most kind and generous to me. Mm. But um, my becoming Lord Chancellor was really quite special so far as I was concerned. I was... Um, a Lord of Appeal by that time, a member of the Judicial Committee in the House of Lords. I, I had been that for about um, two years. And uh, I had gone down in the afternoon after we'd finished hearing cases to listen to a debate in the Lords on the extradition bill. And when I was sitting there, uh, a gentleman came in with a message for me that the Prime Minister would like to see me as soon as possible. So I had to go and phone a number that was given on the paper. And uh, that's what I was asked, to come over to Downing Street as soon as I could. So I had no idea what it was about, none whatsoever, because Michael Havers was the Lord Chancellor, and I had seen him on the previous Thursday. He had had a time of quite bad ill health, but he was, seemed to be better, and he was quite cheerful when I saw him on the Thursday. Anyway... I went over in due course to number 10 and I was taken immediately up to the Prime Minister's uh, room. Uh, I was taken, there was people about in the main part of the number 10, so I was taken up directly from the front door uh, and uh, brought into her room and she was there by herself. And the, the private secretary, of course, uh, uh, took me up and he, he was there I think I think he remained in the room I can't be absolutely certain of that anyway she said to me to have a seat which I duly did 
which uh, all the better for it. And um, <laughs> she said to me, Michael Havers has had to resign the office of Lord Chancellor because of his ill health. And we would like you, we would like you to be the Lord Chancellor. Hmm. So I said to her, well, that's a huge honor. But two things I want to say. First of all, in a matter like this, as you know better than I, your family are affected. And therefore, before I give a final answer, I would like to speak to my wife about it. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that you'll know uh, that I don't normally do work on the Sunday. She said, there is no difficulty about that. She said, we all want to have Sunday special. Mm. So that was that. Uh, and she said, as far as speaking to your wife is concerned, there's a telephone phone. <laughs> so uh, I was faced with the telephone at the end of the prime minister's table. And I phoned to my wife in Edinburgh and she wasn't in. <laughs> so the Prime Minister said, I said, sorry, she's not there. She said, when will she be back? I said, I have no idea. But she said, please let me know as soon as you know yourself. So needless to say, I was phoning uh, pretty regularly. <laughs> uh, eventually, Beth came in and she said, uh, that uh, it's not the sort of uh, offer I could refuse. Yeah. I, she knew I wanted to do it, I yeah. think. Anyway, uh, she was willing, willing, because it's quite an ordeal uh, to be the Lord Chancellor's wife, as I knew it would be. Mm -hmm. uh, anyhow, uh, that's how it happened. And then I went to phone to number 10 to tell the uh, Prime Minister, and it's the private secretary I got and I, I said to him what the answer was. Oh, he said, I can't take that. <laughs> speak to the prime minister. So that's, that's what I did. And she said to me when I had, before I left the first time, she said, we're very anxious to get this out at once because it's just this afternoon that Michael Havers retired, resigned. And therefore I'm wanting to get it out on the seven o'clock news, if at all possible. Mm. Well, that turned out to be possible. And it was out on the seven o'clock news. Mm. And there was quite an extraordinary happening following from that, that the inner temple of which I'm an honorary bencher and of which Michael Havers was a full bencher had arranged a dinner for the Wednesday of the following week in honor of the Lord Chancellor, in honor of Lord Havers. Mm. So that very night after the seven o'clock news, the um, under treasurer of the inner temple phoned to say that they had this predicament and what were they going to do? So I said, well, I think you should just go ahead with it. And uh, Michael Havers will be there. The only, I had booked as a guest to go anyway. And the only person to ask extra is my wife. So oh, he said, and I said, it, but it all depends on what Michael Havers wants to do. So he said he would ask him, and uh, Michael Havers agreed with this. So we had the dinner on the Wednesday in honor of the Lord Chancellor, and that was the printed menu printed before some 
a week or two before the change in mm. honor of the Lord Chancellor. It didn't specify. And Michael Havers made a very, very generous speech on in my behalf. And uh, then I had to reply as briefly as I could uh, to the honor that had been conferred upon me. And of course, it was a particularly anxious time for me because I wasn't a member of the English Bar. And so I was appointed to an office which had never been held by anybody in recent times. I mean, it wasn't lawyers or very originally. It was churchmen usually. Yeah, it was churchmen, yeah. But in recent times, it had always been held by a member of the English Bar. So I was very conscious of the fact that a very tremendous honour had been put on my shoulders. And I sought the help of... Um, what should I say, the help of my real helper to help me in it. Mm. Well, it's perhaps steering it back to churchmen as well. So, But um, is it um, is it true that, well, there's a famous photograph of uh, Mrs. Thatcher coming out of 10 Downing Street for the very last time and, of course, shedding a tear as she gets into her, her car. Is it true that just before she left 10 Downing Street, you had prayed with her? No, that's no, not true. That, that's not true. I wasn't there at all. I wasn't there at all. Needless to say, I felt extremely sorry for her. My part in that was uh, somewhat earlier on her last cabinet meeting. And she was just, she would be going there soon. On her last cabinet meeting, it, it became my role because by that time, I was the senior in the protocol in the cabinet. I had moved up from where I started off. The Lord Chancellor was always fairly high, but um, it, uh, some people senior to me had moved out in the meantime. And I was the second to Mrs. Thatcher in the cabinet. So it fell to me to comment on the fact that she was resigning. Huh. And um, I had to do that. Uh, needless to say, I had the help of the cabinet secretary in preparing what I was going to say, but it was my responsibility what I said. And that I did. And then she was going to reply. And uh, as she started to reply, it became rather difficult for her. And Michael Cecil Parkinson was sitting on her other side. I was beside her and he was on the other side. And he said to her, the Lord Chancellor will read it for you. I said, the Lord Chancellor will not read it for you. The Prime Minister will make a statement herself. And that immediately you know, brought her up to do it, and she carried on and carried on. And that that was my part in the um, mm. early, in the uh, ending of her uh, responsibility in office. Yeah, they were amazing times in history, weren't they? Could I just ask you about one or two other um, uh, well-known lawyers who are Christians? Because I, I, I find this quite interesting. The master of the roles, Lord Denning, I think was your predecessor, as the chairman of the Lawyers Christian Fellowship, is that president. the president? Of, yes, he was. And 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 did you know him well? Oh, I knew him very well, very well. He used to come up when I was the Lord Advocate. He came up to Scotland uh, to the Lord Society's conference, and I used to. He was getting a little bit lame at that time, and he used to take my arm and walk along, and I had quite a lot of talk with him. Uh, and he, he nominated me for one or two things. Uh, but um, 
the Lawyers Christian Fellowship was one, and I became his successor yes. as president. And then the Lawyers Christian Fellowship decided that it'd be better without a president and other officers. So they changed the constitution. So I ceased to be the president. So I, the past president. <laughs> the last one, yes. The past, the past president of the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. Amazing. So that's, uh, yeah, but he knew, I knew him very well. And there's just one thing I should mention about his character. He was a, I had a case that went to the House of Lords ultimately, and it went through the English courts. And I wasn't at that time eligible to appear in the English courts, but right. it was appealed from the English Court of Appeal to the House of Lords. And then I got back into it at that stage, at the House of Lords stage. But the Court of Appeal, presided over by uh, Lord Denning, by three to nothing, said our case was bad. So it was a bit of a thing for me to go to the House of Lords and say uh, the decision of the Court of Appeal was bad and the decision of the original judge was better and indeed <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, as it happened, as it happened, uh, when we came to the House of Lords, uh, we triumphed five nothing over the Court of Appeal. <laughs> the is that I met Lord Denning often after that, and he never in any way showed any antipathy or uh, uh, hostility to me whatsoever. Mm. He knew that we had won and won hands down on a point that he never really properly considered. How interesting, how interesting. And Lord Hailsham. Now, <laughs> I've got to come clean. When I was uh, when I was younger, I wanted to be a lawyer and I loved the I, I loved the character of Lord Hailsham, Quinton Hogg, of course, as he was. When I was 14, I left. I made my first will and I was going to leave all my possessions to him. <laughs> he, he didn't miss out on much, I can assure you. But um, I read his autobiography and in it he has this wonderful sentence where he says, when I die and stand before God in judgment, I'm going to plead guilty and cast myself upon the mercy of the court. What do you think of that sentence? Would, can you go along with that? Is that how you would feel? Well, it's um, this way that I look at it. We are offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ forgiveness if we confess our sins mm. if we confess our sins said john apostle john he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and i hope and pray that i will truthfully confess all my sins and they are not finished i'm sorry to say uh, all my sins now and the result of that is forgiveness and according to the gospel uh, theory uh, theology that i know a uh, justification comes with forgiveness in jesus christ forgiveness mm -hmm. from all our sins and therefore although i quite appreciate uh, lord hilsham's um, attitude to the matter I think I prefer what I understand to be the gospel position that forgiveness is given now 
and our sins are blotted out now. He nailed them to his cross and delivered us from our sins. And that, I think, is the uh, message of the apostles in their letters, and it was Christ's own message also. No, I, I'm with you on that entirely. I, I hope Lord Hailsham was saying it in a slightly poetic way, but I, I well, agree. He was, and he wanted to show that he wasn't, he was a sinner. Yes. I mean, that's the thing he wanted to show. So many people uh, tend to believe that there are some people who don't, uh, you know, get over sinning altogether, saints in the, in the purest sense. Hmm. But I think he wanted to emphasize that he didn't feel like that. No, and of course, he had a hard life. I'll tell you one thing about him that I mentioned. I, um, the Lord Chancellor reads the lesson at the service for lawyers in Westminster Abbey at the beginning of the legal year. Right. And the, one of the years I did it, I, I um, read the latter part of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, where it says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And and Quinton said to me one day after that, I think maybe when I saw him after that, he said, James, I have not found it easy nor light. Mm. Mm. I could understand why. He lost his wife in a very bad accident and when they were abroad. Yes. And he had other problems as well. Mm. I'd love but to have met him, but absolutely. Now, you talked about sin, and of course the Bible says that we're sinners. God, who's holy, looks on us and he sees us as sinners. But conscience says that as well, doesn't it? And and I, I've heard you speak a little bit about conscience. Why, why do you believe conscience is so important? Well, I think it is. I think it's the it's the the messenger that God has put by His Holy Spirit or by our creation, really, into our hearts. We're made in the image of God, and we have a sense uh, of right or wrong. Uh, I think that is a part of the conscience function, and I believe that one is in bound to try to understand what it is that one's supposed to do and do one's best to do it, although sadly we often fail. Mm -hmm. And the conscience is what tells us when we fail and when we can seek confession and forgiveness. Mm, and I also believe that it's not right for people to dictate what the conscience is to decide in specific situations. Absolutely. I, mean, I think that it's a matter of conscience sometimes to say whether you should do one thing or another. Yeah. Um, drawings were closed, but um, I, I know you've said that the Bible is the foundational source book for the Scottish legal system. It's probably true of, of the English legal system as well. But do you think that's still true today? Well, I think that it was. And of course, the, the foundations are capable of being departed from in the sense that what you build on them may be different from the foundation. And I think there is no doubt that uh, a good deal of our modern law in a number of countries, including the United Kingdom, 
is not in accordance with the Holy Scriptures, in my understanding of the Holy Scriptures, mm -hmm. which, of course, eh, are subject to interpretation. It's a document and therefore a subject to interpretation, eh, and therefore it's uh, very important to realize that we are eh, in duty bound to interpret it as we honestly believe it says. Absolutely. Um, clearly, you're a very, very successful lawyer. Which means most to you, the law or the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I hope, I hope that it is our Lord and I depend on him for life in this world and in the, life, in the world to come. Mm. Mm. And if you had, so if you had to give up one and keep the other, you'd be willing to give up the law for the sake of Christ? Yeah, well, of course, I'm, I'm not under law anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easier now. Strictly <laughs> speaking, strictly speaking, but uh, I, I, um, I mean, it's, uh, there's not an option in a way. I mean, the law, no. the law is uh, my daily work. Uh, and I try to do that uh, in accordance with what I believe to be right. But uh, the law, I'm not, I'm not responsible for the law. Uh, I was to some smile, minor extent at uh, one time. I, I was responsible for the Children Act. I was responsible for the act that deals with IVF. I was the first to take in the acknowledgement of the Secret Services into an act of parliament. And then I had the... Uh, business of changing the rules of God to uh, barristers' rights of audience and so on. But uh, the law is set there uh, by uh, our legislature appointed uh, to do so. And we have to remember that the powers that be, says the Bible, are ordained of God. And they may not always be in accordance. They may not always be doing what they should, but so do so is all of us. Mm -hmm. Where none of us are doing what we should all the time. I regret to say, I don't judge you, but I'm judging myself. No, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, I, I know you'd say you don't do the law anymore, but you, you're still working very hard. Do you think one day you'll retire? Well, I, I've retired from being the Lord Chancellor more than 20 yeah, years ago. I still see you in the House of Lords when I look on the television. <laughs> well, uh, yes, um, my attitude to that is a bit uh, difficult to to be sure of. I mean, uh, it's getting very large, the House of Lords. <laughs> and one way of making it smaller is for people to retire. But the way I look at it so far, and I haven't changed very much yet. Anyway, whatever, I don't say anything about tomorrow. But so far as I'm concerned, I was appointed for life in the original letters patent that were issued in 1979. The um, letters patent I got as a Lord of Appeal in Ordinary are more qualified in that they require you to behave yourself well in the office. <laughs> only lasts so long as you well behave yourself therein. But the life peerage, which I got first, 1979, is a life peerage. And I feel that so long as I feel that I can contribute something, I mean, experience is quite important. 
I feel a certain responsibility to execute the purpose for which I was put there. On the other hand, circumstances change mm. and uh, one's health is important in that respect and there are other considerations also. Mm. Uh, I, um, so do, you think I, do you think that we'll ever have an autobiography of Lord Mackay? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I would love to read one. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't think I want to start that. Uh, I, I, I was asked about it very early after I retired, after I ceased to be the Lord Chancellor, I yeah. should say. <laughs> yes. uh, I, I concluded that I didn't want to do that. Most of the autobiographies that I have read uh, by people who are in the public life tend to um, give a, a light on what they did and the part they took, which may not be exactly what everybody would think. And I didn't want to start defending myself in respect to matters that I had been involved in in that in a, in a book. So I decided very, um, very, very definitely I'm not going to write an autobiography. <laughs> anyway, the time's getting short. <laughs> and last question, have you ever regretted um, having put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Never, never. And I, I don't believe I ever will. I've regretted that I haven't followed him as faithfully and well as I ought to. Uh, but I know that he's a merciful and gracious saviour who gave his life for the sheep gave his life. If I'm part of his flock, he gave his life for me. And I seek to honour that for as long as I live here. And I look forward to being received in his father's house. Thank you so much, Lord Mackay. Absolutely fascinating. But thank you very, very much. God bless you. Thank you very much for asking me. <laughs>